السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگس واللہ بی اپون آن آل اوور لسنرس تھینک یو ونس اگین ٹو جوائننگ اس اینڈ ویلکم ایوری بڈی آل اوور لسنرس ٹو ڈرائیو ٹائم شو ہیئر ان وائس آف اسلام مائی نیم از انیک الرحمٰن اینڈ آئی ایم ون آف دا پرزینٹر ہیئر ان دا اسٹوڈیو ٹوڈے اینڈ وی ول بی ڈسکسنگ ٹو ویری انٹرسٹنگ ٹاپکس اینڈ Uh, we hope it's beneficial for you and uh, uh, you know in the first hour we'll be discussing uh, a very important topic regarding body image how it's impacting uh, you know people's mental health and their physical health and what are the uh, problems they are facing and uh, what they are suffering from and how they can come out of it in the second hour we'll be discussing another very important topic which is international aid we know people in, in in the whole world there are some countries which need help and the people they are vulnerable there and we will be discussing how the other countries whom god has given a lot of uh, <clears throat> means to take care of others and we will be discussing how the international aid has been provided to them and what are the hurdles they are facing so please stay tuned with us and uh, we will be discussing these both subjects uh, in detail today before <clears throat> going to the our today's show i would like to inform all of us that you can call us uh, in the studio on 0208 687 7878 and you can email us as well on www.voiceofislam.co.uk and you can also tweet at voiceofislamuk we have our instagram page you can also visit that as well and you can give your comment and see what's going on there and how you know the discussion which we are having here you will find this some kind of glimpse there as well moving on to the first subject and a topic a very important topic people you know are suffering from it it is body image body image refers to a person's perception attitude and beliefs about their own physical appearance and the way a person perceives their body can have a significant impact on their mental and physical health sometimes negative body image you know characterized by feelings of dissatisfaction or shame about one's appearance is associated with the range of mental health problems which which includes you know depression anxiety low self-esteem and you know eating disorders when you discuss <clears throat> islam particularly on this The Quran, the Holy Quran acknowledges the reality of these emotions and by extension acknowledges the reality of depression. As we can see in the verse where God Almighty says and let not their words grieve thee surely all power belongs to Allah he is the all hearing the all knowing. We see that God Almighty has mentioned in the Holy Quran there are other verses where God has mentioned they should not be hurting somebody and should not be you know some you saying should not be saying some words of grieve you know which hurt other people and especially when we discuss about or discuss this topic body image we see 
that it's impacting on mental health and physical health and sometime when some people say something regarding their body image or how they look and uh, even though they don't know what they are suffering from then what happens actually they suffer and if we discuss you know the cost of proof body image or who suffers from it and why according to the mental health foundation it says the body image refers to how people perceive their physical appearance including their height their weight and overall shape and it often results from comparing one's own appearance to unrealistic and idealized images of beauty that are prevalent in media society we see in the world nowadays we use social media everybody has phone everybody is on social media using something some are using instagram some are using tiktok some are using some other uh, you know platforms where they see that how the beauty has been you know carried or how they think what how should look what should be you what should you should be wearing if you are fat or if you have more weight it's uh, it's not good of course it's not good for health but sometimes that shouldn't be the case of shaming someone that because you have or you overweight or you are you have this and that you're not looking good and what they don't know that there's a possibility that the person is suffering from something he is going through in their life and that is a cause of that thing but even then the thing we were discussing today it does not you know give them a some kind of sense or that they are the people who are skinny they are beautiful or that's the body you should be going for and everybody is in 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 some kind of depression that why i can't be become like that so body image as i mentioned refers to how people perceive their physical appearance and including their just not only body how it looks like but even though it's the shape or height or you know the overall look of it promoting beauty and fashion industries you know idolize body images to encourage consumerism and promote the beauty that's one of the things which we see that when they promote things when you find on social media that things are going on they are promoting uh, you know the fashion and uh, you know by looking at the people that how they are looking what they want they want to promote their industry the beauty and the fashion industries you know particularly fashion and beauty magazines we see there they want to promote the beauty and the end result would be they want people to buy that and become like that and you know to make them obsessed that they have to be like those and when we look in the young people you know many young people are embracing body positivity and advocating for a wider range of body types uh, to be represented in the media they are encouraging people to accept and love their bodies as they are and uh, you know challenging the notion that only certain body types are beautiful or desirable so this is very you know <clears throat> the topic is very important to you know convey this message to all our listeners that to being a healthy person that's one thing 
just say that this is, you know, the, the, the person, the certain body types are beautiful or desirable. That's, you know, not absolutely right. And demoralizing other, you know, discouraging other that you doesn't look, you don't look like, uh, you know, you're not looking good or smart just because you're not like that. That's the thing we will be discussing and what we, you know, go in, in detail that sometime what happens these things when we say to others if somebody is you know good looking is smart and he is saying that you should be like that that should not be the case anybody can be beautiful how they are the way god has created the way their body is the way their height is so there shouldn't be any shame how you are and that's what we're discussing that the beauty which we see around us or you know the social media and the uh, the, the the way they want people to become, if they're not following it, there's no shame in it. Then young people are also advocating for more diverse representation in the media, including representation of people of different races, body types and abilities. If we discuss particularly the body image and young people, we find that Poor body images is a common and negative issue that affects people's well-being with increasing concerns among, especially young people. And during the 10 years, body image can have a big impact on self-esteem, you know, their confidence if they're continuously hearing these things, and overall well-being. And it happens actually when somebody is, you know, you are with the people who are thinking like that and automatically you lose your confidence. You think that you are maybe less than them. And, you know, we, we, we need to understand that nobody who is going through this should think about it. They should be confident. They should be, you know, bold enough to have a same level. And they should not be feeling less than others if they are surrounded by those people. Parents can help their teens, you know, develop a healthy body image by focusing on their child's positive qualities, encouraging healthy habits and modeling positive behavior. And a positive body image, on the other hand, is characterized by a healthy and balanced relationship with one's body and physical appearance. Nearly half of adults, 47% in the UK, believe that looks affect life opportunities. And one third believe that a person's value is based on their appearance. So this is the things we will be discussing and uh, we will be focusing furthermore how to, you know, uh, to give the broad image how the people are see obesity, how people, whether they actually value this, value, you know, people value people on the basis of their appearance or, you know, they are some other things. But anyway, we'll be discussing this in detail and uh, we will be uh, covering this topic in detail before going to going further i would like to play um, a recording where we will be listening that can spirituality help depression and we will be dis later on we'll be discussing that as well that how one can achieve peace and mental you know to, to recover from, uh, you know, mental health problems 
through spirituality and definitely it helps and we'll be listening to this and then we'll be coming back to discuss that topic further. Peace be upon you. I'd like to talk about something that I think is quite common, that being feelings of emptiness or a sense of disconnection that doesn't necessarily fall into the medical definition of depression or other pathologies. Although personally, I do think it can be related to conditions like that quite intimately for some people. A lot of people feel an underlying sense of disconnection, which can manifest in many different ways. Feelings of emptiness or loneliness even when we aren't alone, a terrible inability to be alone with our own thoughts, an overwhelming fear of death or feelings of nihilism. This feeling of disconnection has been attributed to a whole myriad of things. The breakdown of the typical nuclear family, isolation from nature and each other, and even growing economic inequality. And while I think all of these things might contribute to or exacerbate the situation, my own personal opinion is that the causative reason for our feeling of disconnection is that we've abandoned a key part of what makes us human, our spirituality, our practices of prayer and contemplation, and an understanding that there is a reality that is not accessible to our material, everyday senses, that can only be accessed through spiritual practices, but are nevertheless as essential to us as our physical food is to our bodies. After all, the common thread that links immersion in nature or connection with other people is an attempt to fulfill the need to unify ourselves, or at least to feel intimately connected with something greater, something that is transcendent, essential, unchanging, beautiful, nourishing. Almost every human culture of the past seemed to understand this to some degree or another. So it's actually quite remarkable that our now global culture has by and large abandoned any notion of these ideas or practices as valid. Historically, there are a lot of reasons for this that are maybe for another day. But I will say that we're now feeling the negative consequences of the attitude that stems from dismissive, closed-minded materialism. A lot of people attempt to medicate their internal sense of disconnection with anything that will placate their inner disquiet, anything that can partially replicate the feeling of connection for a short period of time. Such measures often include avoiding being alone, using work, friendships, relationships, sex or even drugs as a kind of stopgap to fill that void. In my personal opinion, while these things might work in the short term, they don't get to the root of the problem, and this means that all of these activities are driven by a need to be made whole, instead of out of a choice to add to an internal state that already feels whole. When the stopgap measures, for whatever reason, are no longer available, the feeling of disconnection returns, often worse than before. So I want to be very clear about what I believe and have experienced is the root cause of all this and what is the attendant cure. In my opinion and personal experience, the ultimate root cause of this is the elimination of spirituality and spiritual practices, especially regular prayer, from human life. The function of prayer is to disconnect from the continuous external stimulus that we receive for a brief time, and to attempt to connect ourselves with the higher power, God or Allah. Indeed, to my mind, the mere fact that human beings feel such constant yet varied inner discomfort when we abandon this practice is proof enough that it's something many are in need of. Some of you watching now will agree or have had similar experiences yourselves. Others are going to be more skeptical. To those who ask specifically how one should pray, the answer is that prayer ultimately is varied and personal. But all effective prayer has, throughout human history, been noted to have some common traits. Namely, that it is addressed directly to God and not through any intermediary, that it is heartfelt as much as is possible, and that it's regular. On this point, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, wrote, he who supplicates with the sincerity of his soul is never truly frustrated. That prosperity which cannot be achieved through riches and authority and health, but which is in the hand of God, and he bestows it in whatever shape he wills, is bestowed through perfect prayer. 
I'm personally confident that anyone, no matter their past, who engages in this practice persistently, say on a daily basis, even for a few minutes, and keeps an open heart and mind, will find that their internal state and their experience of living changes dramatically for the better. The feelings of disconnection and internal isolation that they may have felt previously morph into the opposite, feelings of peace, harmony, connectedness. To those who are skeptical, or those who are agnostic, I would simply remind them that a truly rational skeptic puts even those ideas and theories that they are most skeptical about to a deliberate and honest test, and that if the purported benefits of a practice are truly that extraordinary, then that at least is evidently worth trying. You may be pleasantly surprised as to what you experience and find. In summary, I'd like to leave you with a few Quranic verses that crystallize what I've spoken about. And when my servants ask thee about me, say, I am near. I answer the prayer of the supplicant when he prays to me, so they should hearken to me and believe in me that they may follow the right way. Therefore remember me, and I will remember you, and be thankful to me, and do not be ungrateful to me, and seek help with patience and prayer. And this indeed is hard except for the humble in spirit. I, it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to Wednesday afternoon drive time show. Um, just before the break, uh, Brother Anik was talking about the cost of poor body image and and why and who people are uh, suffering um, because of um, uh, the impact the body image is having on their mental um, and uh, physical health. Um, in the society where 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 we are living, um, image body image has become um, has become. Uh, um, it's, it's become more important and relevant uh, to um, to how people feel at the moment. I mean, I, I think from a generational point of view, uh, in the society is putting more and more pressure on uh, on uh, um, on how young people um, are perceiving or how um, what's the what's the word I'm looking for here? It's 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 become it's become more relevant than before. Um, before it was, uh, it wasn't just uh, the body image, but uh, it was uh, also, um, you know, the substance of the person. But whereas uh, now, body image is the first thing people tend to uh, tend to look at. And uh, we've got uh, with us uh, um, our guests who can shed some more light on this topic. We've got with us uh, Maria Mahmoud, who's director, and uh, Hadil Noor. Uh, both of them are um, work at uh, the helpline. Um, Muslim Youth uh, Helpline recognizes uh, a need to support young Muslims' mental health and well-being, and their mission is to provide young Muslims with a safe and confidential space to turn to for emotional support through non-judgmental, non-directional faith and culturally sensitive free helpline. Good afternoon, welcome, um, Assalamualaikum, and peace be on you. Waalaikumsalam. Um, thank you for having us. Thank you for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Um, could you please tell us what are some common ways negative body image can affect uh, young mental, young people's mental health, and how can we identify and address these concerns? Well, like you rightly um, said, you know, the, the negative body image doesn't just impact the physical, and it, it can start with physical, it, or it can start with the mental, but then it does usually impact the other. So, for instance. If you have a negative body image, it impacts your physical health and that can then in turn also impact your mental health as well. Um, those negative thoughts about your body image can create a whole host of other problems and feelings 
Um, they can lead to anxiety, body dysmorphia, depression, um, eating disorders because you then have a negative association with food and your body. And then feelings of like shame and guilt, not liking the way you look, um, negative talk, negative self-talk, also like the, the poor self-esteem that you have, and then constantly being preoccupied with your weight and body type. So that's almost always going to be the center of everything that you do um, all the decisions that you make um, and that um, the low mood generally as well. So there are a whole host of things that can lead to just having that negative body image, um, both physical health and your mental health will be impacted. impacted. Maria, what are some strategies uh, for promoting body positivity and self-love among young people, especially in the age of uh, social media and analytic beauty standards? There's, I mean, there's so much that you can do, but also surround yourself with as well. You know, like the idea of just reimagining what it means to be healthy. That young person has now has a very different idea of what they mean or associate with being healthy. They have to now reimagine that. Like, what does it mean? What does it mean to be healthy? And what does it mean to be skinny and unhealthy? And can you be both? Can you be healthy and skinny? Like, they've got to reimagine that, and and they need the support of the people around them to do that. Um, also, focus um, on the things you like about yourself. And I know that that is so it's, it's easier said than done, but it's it's a starting point. Um, Another thing is also start complimenting others around you. This helps you to see positive attributes about beyond the physical and and stuff. Um, surround yourself with good, positive online content and offline. Um, it's so easy to change who you follow, what you see and what you take in. You, mm. It's all about algorithms online. So if you start to take the positive steps in surrounding yourself with positive content, good content that reinforces a good message, um, you can very much change what you're seeing or um, what um, you are absorbing online. Um, one thing I, I, I like to tell people is that it's so important to recognize how strong and resilient your body is. So you might be in a place where you do not like your body, but you've got to recognize that your body does so much for, for you. Um, and sometimes we forget how we are and some of the things that we've overcome and some of those obstacles and that's completely due to your you know your body um something so trivial and so simple that you might not really absorb is like your your body's ability to do that hike or that trail or that uh that marathon that you that you did you know that's all down to your body um and and, and it's resilient so you know making that a point as well um being critical of i'd say the content that we absorb so Start identifying why what you're seeing or absorbing is, is negative and, and, and pointing it out um, so that you're not including that in your in, in, in your journey to like get away from that space. Um, and I guess, you know, we're talking to young people who the, the, the image of what they wear and what what they're doing and all that is, is very important. Um, and. It, it's going to be hard for them to go, go beyond that. So you've got to then go into their world and kind of um, support them where they are um, instead of taking it out. Uh, so uh, identifying like what makes them feel good about themselves. So if it's like a particular type of clothing that makes them feel more comfortable, picking things out that make you feel good and comfortable um, rather than the opposite. So there are a whole host of things um, that uh, uh, someone can do to help them um, overcome and start loving their, themselves, start loving their body um, and going away from those unrealistic 
beauty standards that we we so often see online and we're almost bombarded with. Hmm. Maria, uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, it's Raza here on the line. Um, on on that note, where do you think that um, what's What's it for for parents specifically? What's a good age for them to start to their kids about about these issues? Because I know that when it comes to social media, unfortunately, the, the age is getting younger and younger where kids with at the age of 12, at the age of 11 or even younger, they start um, their basically their journey on social media, which again, as you mentioned, it's all about algorithms. It's, it, all it takes is for you mm. to watch one gym video or one advertisement and then they pretty much got you. Yeah. I I, I don't think there's like a set age and it's one of or, those Or maybe the approach, maybe not the age, but yeah. what approach do you think parents can, can, can take um, in order for, for their children to be safe from this and guide them basically to all of these things that you mentioned just right now? Mm. Um, it's that constant reminder. And so you may think that speaking to your child at a very young age about um, exposing them to uh, positive body images or, uh, or reinforcing good good conversations or good topics around them, um, if it's instilled at a young age, it's kind of done the job. But the idea is that once it's instilled at a young age, it may not transfer at a later age when their their struggles are very different. Yeah. Um, and I say it's, it's, it's a constant reminder and it's a, it's, it can be a lot of hard work, but it's getting that young person to a good place. It's always reminding them how much they are loved, what it means to be the person that they are. You know, they're good attributes, both physical and beyond. Um, what makes them them. Um, it's also important to show them that it's okay to be vulnerable as well. Hmm. Um, you can't completely escape these um, these conversations or these feelings because it's part and parcel of growing up your bodies do change, they develop. You do go through an awkward phase and yeah. we all went through it. Um, and so you can't completely disregard it, but it's also about uh, being sensitive around that time as well. Um, sometimes parents can take like a very harsh approach, like, oh, we've all been through it, come on. But yeah. it's not, I think it's, it's, it's about identifying how your child is and what their needs are. And each child will be different and they'll respond to different things um, differently. And, and it's just... Um, I mean, like, I mean, we've all identified that it's yeah. it's difficult being a young person, but also social media, it, it the the overexposure of the idealized body type, yeah, and yeah. The, uh, sometimes you know, automatically going on an app and the filters that are there without you realizing, hmm. um, those are damaging things. So sometimes it's not even the child doing this; it's sometimes it's just automatically there and available and it's accessible, um, and that can also be quite scary. Also, it's important to um, like realize that kids hear what their parents say and how their parents even talk about themselves and their own bodies. Yeah. Um, so I think being careful of the way that we speak around children, because at that age, when they're young, they're, they're like sponges. They absorb everything around them. Mm. Um, so just being careful also about how we speak about ourselves and our friends um, can, can feed into that positive body image, I think, around children. Children see, children do, isn't it? Now, lastly, to both of you, I want to ask you about your work specifically at the Muslim Youth Helpline. How do you work to raise awareness and reduce stigma around mental health issues? And what are some of the most effective approaches that you found? One thing that I'm not sure if you mentioned this in the introduction, you have a faith and culturally sensitive free helpline. How much or how big of a role does culture play in, in, in your 
um, the calls that you get, the problems that you know the youth um, uh, brings to you. I think um, when it, oh, sorry, Maria. <laughs> no, go ahead, Hadil. <laughs> I was going to say, when it comes to culture, um, a lot of the young people who call us might have been born and raised here, um, but they do sometimes feel a bit distant um, when they when they seek to get support from mainstream services, um, because um, it could be that their families or their grandparents or their or their friends have that culture at home that they don't have as soon as they step out into you know mm. outside of their homes. So it's it's important to kind of marry those two things. Um, it could be that the issues are stemming from home, and when they go to a mainstream service, they're unable to understand that. So even having somebody who understands you on a level where you don't have to explain small terms here and there, or um, maybe why you live in a multi-generation um, household, um, and, and issues like that, um, it really does create like a level of trust um, and, and builds a report, which is very important when it comes to um, seeking support and giving that support. Maria? Um, yeah, I completely echo what Hadil has said and, and, and your question around how do we raise awareness and, and reduce that stigma. I mean, the idea is that the, the fact that we exist, the fact that we promote a healthy space where young people are encouraged to come and speak um, and to get some emotional support and be that um, and, and, and have access to a listening ear. We're constantly highlighting the importance of speaking about some of these things before it gets too dangerous and before, you know, your mental health takes takes over, mm. you know, to have a healthy balance in your life. Um, that's, that's the helpline. But beyond the helpline, uh, we raise a lot of awareness of mental health and well-being in the community through the resources, through our social media channels, um, through the content that we push out. We don't shy away from topics. Uh, we really do, you know, and, and they're all from the helpline. So if we identify that there's a particular topic that young Muslims are currently calling in about, um, you know, we will talk about it and we will make sure that we're using those terminologies that, you know, resonate with young people, but that also um, ensure that we're not um, shying away from topics that maybe they would be, um, maybe wouldn't have unearthed really in any other situation. Mm-hmm. Now I know I know I said last question, but do forgive me. I have one more um, on 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 that note. Um, Muslim Youth Helpline. How 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 big of a role does faith play in 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 the solutions that maybe we we can give to the younger generation? How much of that do you use, or how much is needed? Maybe I don't know if if that makes sense along these lines. It's all down to the young person who accesses our helpline. Um, we are primarily an emotional support service. We don't sure. give any advice, but what we do is we support that young person with whatever they're going through um, to have a dialogue and get the right support. Um, and so if the young person comes to us and they want to bring faith to the table, mm-hmm. uh, we are able to recognize that. And because um, we are, uh, you know, we, ident- we, we accept the faith and the cultural element of things, we are able to promote that and support young people through that. But if they don't want to bring faith to the table, then we recognize that at this moment in time, that's not something that's going to support them or that they might shy away from. So it's very much user-led, and that's really important to to meet the young person where they are um, and so that they can get the right support for themselves. Wonderful. Maria Mahmoud and Hadil Nood, thank you very much, Jazakallah, for joining us today um, and uh, for talking about this very, very pertinent issue and you know, wonderful work that you're doing out there. Muslim Youth Help and recognizes the need to support young Muslims' mental health and well-being, and that is something that they're doing. So, uh, thank you very much again to both of you sisters for, for joining us today. Jazakallah. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. Don't forget, we're asking you a question in our opinion poll on Instagram. So go to Instagram, uh, at Voice of Islam UK, on our Instagram page and on the Instagram story for today. The question is, what is the biggest cause of negative body image? Is it past trauma? Is it family pressure? Is it the media or is it social circle? And at the moment, social circles and the media unfortunately is winning right now um moving on um i think you mentioned a few very very important points one one thing that i think uh, maria and hadu were talking about as well is about the breakup of the nuclear family i mean if you don't have that the backing or the support or or the the basics created uh, the foundations laid by the family, it becomes quite difficult to to face those challenges in life, isn't it? Indeed, you know, <clears throat> in, on every step you need help from your friends, maybe your family. Sometimes sure. you're struggling with uh, some uh, problems as we are discussing, especially regarding mental health and, you know, the body image or, you know, body uh, problems. Hmm. And sometimes, you know, you are in depression, you are facing or you're going through from, you know, some kind of depression, and you need to help your family of or your your friends. Yeah. Somebody should be around you to help you, and you know to help all the way to come out of those uh, depression or any other problem going on. And in your, usually, in, your... in most of the cases, is I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen that that ad. It's a it's a it's a picture. I think last year or two years ago, maybe even longer. You had these posters around London, at least that it's not about presence, it's not about what you give them. It's sometimes all you need is someone to talk to. All you need is someone to give you that ear for a couple of minutes so you, you, you can have a conversation. Just let out what is what is bothering you. Uh, you know, one thing I see living in society, mm. we are blessed enough, we, have, we live in a family. Sometimes there are people living alone, there mm. are youngsters just living on their own, and they are facing these problems and sure. they know what to speak to. So yeah. I think... For them, especially, and uh, we should be grateful to God that we have somebody to speak. But there are people who are, you know, just alone. They have nobody to speak to. Yeah. And if they find someone where they can, you know, mention their problems or discuss with them and somebody is there yeah. to help them on every day, definitely it helps, you know, for them to come out of it. Our next guest for today is a surgeon who has been working in Spain for more than 25 years. Dr. Mansoor Atayilahi is with us on the line. Assalamu alaikum, good afternoon. Peace be upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah and thank you for having me. Jazakallah, thank you so much for joining us today. Dr. Mansoor, we talk about healthy body images. We talk about the negative stereotypes that we see in the in the so in the media world, social media specifically. But why is a healthy body image so important? And is it that important? Uh, well, <laughs> it, it, this is important because uh, uh, it, I mean, not only because. Um, uh, it affects. Uh, sorry, my English is not that good. I will try oh, no. to so far so ex- good. Express express myself as as best. Uh, Put in some of I the can. Spanish. Maybe we can yes. translate it. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the the thing is that, as it has been said before, um, the the people who have uh, a negative feeling or unhealthy. Uh, body image 
uh, they go uh, in, uh, in, la in large amount of cases into uh, eating disorders, mm. low self-esteem, which affects uh, uh, many areas in their lives and, uh, uh, of course, uh, depression. So um, the thing is that, uh, especially uh, because of the environment in which, uh, uh, especially Western societies, uh, the the situation uh, is uh, working against uh, all uh, uh, all possible possible remedies that could uh, uh, improve the situation. So we are uh, having not only a problem which uh, could be prevalent in any society, but we are affected by a very bad environment mm. which uh, worsens uh, more and more the the situation yeah. so and uh, do you yeah, think that sorry. some people are more likely to develop a negative body image and 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 if so what does it or what is it mm -hmm. that causes it? I mean, you've mentioned that it can lead to eating disorders, it can lead to other mental health issues, but are there specific, let's say, age groups or genders or location where you are? Does that have an impact? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, apart from uh, some genetic disorders uh, that lead to um, body image uh, problems, uh, in our in our societies, the the girls and the the women are more likely to have um, uh, these sort of uh, uh, problems uh, because they are under pressure to fit into uh, some unrealistic ideals, both cultural and social. Hmm. Uh, since they are small, they are praised for how they they look and not uh, because of their thoughts or actions uh, and uh, as it has been said before the uh, you know the the models which are uh, offered in the in the messages the social media hmm. they are they are not real they are not real images. most of them they have been manipulated through computers and so the Photoshop, whatever yeah. they 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 see as a, a role models or no, sorry, no, really models of hmm. what they want to be. They are not, it, it doesn't exist uh, in uh, real life. No? Another hmm. group of, uh, uh, another group which is very vulnerable to this are the children, uh, the children, because they are much influenced by the way of living or their parents. Uh, it's like uh, parents who died, the, the children they would be uh, always worrying, or many children would be worrying about their uh, uh, how they look, hmm. or uh, those parents who have uh, a negative or uh, unhealthy body image. It would be reflecting on them, and uh, uh, I mean, everybody is uh, could be affected, but especially in this society. The most vulnerable groups are the, the women, the girls, and the children. Hmm. 
And lastly, I want to ask you that a lot of people think that if I am not happy with the way I look, if um, things have gone so bad, then there's always an option of surgery. Does mm-hmm. surgery or how can surgery help to improve um, a negative body image? Uh, well, that, you know, there are some obvious cases in which uh, surgery is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, for instance, a woman who had a mastectomy, uh, then uh, obviously this is a trauma for any any woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, doctors, especially nowadays, they can do a lot to uh, restore somehow uh, the organ which has been amputated. You know? mm. uh, obviously, it's not just the operation. It would need uh, a, 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 a very clear explanation with all the operation, then uh, uh, some sort of rehabilitation, physical exercise. But nowadays, the reconstructive methods, they're so advanced that uh, you can say that if the, the woman gets cured, then the, the trauma of this amputation is uh, nearly, uh, to, I mean, to a big percentage, is, uh, um, she finds relief in that. Hmm. Another, another obvious place in which we help the people is uh, those who are uh, uh, extreme uh, obese people. I mean, you know, those who have a, a very large uh, not overweight, but in a, um, in a mm. uh, why we call it morbid obesity i don't know yeah. if it's the right word of course so yes. in that case i mean obviously the surgery not only um, restores a better uh, body image but also helps them uh, uh, not to have uh, uh, heart problems or diabetes etc mm-hmm. regarding uh, those people who feel that they have a defect uh, in their body, um, it is, I mean, if it's a real defect or congenital defect, the surgery has a place there. But if it's uh, just cosmetic, it's very important to uh, assess the, and explain the patient that um, whatever is done to him would be uh, not only permanent, but uh, has uh, obviously uh, some risks, and in even sure. sometimes the result is could be far from what is expected. No? Mm. Uh, so, in this sense, uh, I mean, most of the surgeons uh, who are in the pre-outpatient clinic, they would probably try to get the patient being evaluated by the uh, psychologist, uh, psychiatrist, or, and then, uh, I mean, very few cases, I would say they're really um, needing that surgery. Hmm. Uh, but, I mean, obviously, uh, this is my sort of, uh, my opinion, sure. the other surgeons who are plastic surgeons and they make the money out of that. <laughs> but uh, I don't think uh, oh. for most of the cases that on, um, on surgery, they, they will really need it. You know, it's a pity that most people 
only when they get old, they re they really, they fully are aware and they understand and they are conscious that uh, the appearances or the how one looks is just uh, a part. I would say even a small part of uh, life. Also, the, the, the thing that matters. No? Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, uh, is a is a pity that, that most of the people only realize that when yeah, it's yeah, yeah. sort of sort of bit uh, late. Wonderful. And another thing I would like to add to because somehow it's been mentioned before is that um, you know living in a positive environment uh, is really helpful. Hmm. For, uh, for those people who suffer from uh, some sort of uh, uh, problems with the, the body image. Yeah. I mean, if you live in a, in a group or a community that uh, values the people for their uh, uh, personal values, for their morals, for then uh, obviously all these programs tend to uh, aminorate, no? Yeah. And uh, it, it is funny because uh, most of the experts from the Western world, they always take this, I mean, they they, uh, they take this uh, as one of the strategies, strategies to um, uh, you know, which are useful to help the people is uh, to try them to be in a in a group of uh, people who are, uh, you know, like uh, mentally healthy, hmm. supportive, positive, influence. Uh, positive. Yeah. Uh, and not only that, it also they also encourage the experts encourage to uh, spend uh, some time some time uh, serving helping other people yeah. because mm -hmm. that also the uh, improve the consideration that yes. one has about his own uh, body image. Wonderful. Dr. Mansour Atayla, thank you very much, Jazakallah, uh, for joining us today. A surgeon who has been working in Spain for more than 25 years. Um, thank you so much again for, for, for your time. Wa alaikum salam. Peace be upon you. <clears throat> you know, but, but I was thinking as, as we went along the show, when you mentioned uh, in 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 the introduction about yes, there's one way of how you perceive and how see you how you see yourself, but then again, the role that society, the role that your peers, the role that your friends and and your social circle has on you, most of the time when you see that somebody is is body shaming someone, most of the time when you see that the even the the media or anything that is around you telling you how to look, how to how to, you know, how to be in a way. If you would have a society like this, wouldn't that be boring? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a verse of the Holy Quran that we mentioned here quite a lot on, on the draft time show and verse of some in general probably, that when it comes to race, when it comes to uh, different nationalities, when it comes to different countries, God Almighty has stated in the Holy Quran that we have created you from a male and female, and we we have divided into, into tribes and sub-tribes so that you may recognize each other. 
And isn't that the, the beauty of the world? If everybody would look the same, if everybody would speak the same around the world, there would be no need for us to travel <laughs> and go anywhere, isn't it? That's right. <clears throat> Absolutely right. You know, the, the perspective you're mentioning, that's right about the other perspective as well. We cannot be same, but if we discuss the society as we're discussing, hmm. if people are, let's suppose they are smart, they are looking very handsome. Yeah. And if you say, I don't want to look handsome, just because I think the body the way I am, I'm fine. Hmm. But if we look at the, you know, the the verse of the Holy Quran where God says that, or the the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that the, the, the righteous person who is healthy is more dear to God. Yeah. And what helps basically if you are, you know, not healthy, it, no, 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 I'm not talking about especially you have to have a certain body, you have to have a six pack yes, or something. Yes, yes. But if you have a healthy body, if you are fulfilling your job sometimes, well, what happens if you are not, you know, healthy? It, 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 you know, it affects on your work. Sure. You cannot work properly. You cannot, of course, you know, fulfill your duties which you have in your daily life. So I think it has to be healthy as well. But on the other hand, as we were saying, we cannot be same, but we you know, have to have, you know, a good lifestyle. Mm. You know, the way we are living, it should not be affecting our mental health as well yeah. on the other side. Now, one thing that <clears throat> we do want to talk about here is that there's, there's another side of the story as mm. well. That nowadays, not just now, but a couple of years ago, you had different movements come up and rise to the surface talking about, um, which, I th- look, the the aim and the idea behind it, I'm sure it was very good, it was very noble, that every body type is good. If you look, if you are overweight, feel comfortable in your skin. And, uh, you know, leading on to what you said, according to, for example, the National Health Services, the NHS, proposing obesity as healthy, that can also be problematic as it Mm. may encourage people to ignore potential health risks associated with being overweight. Then you also look at the British uh, Dietetic Association, which promotes a balanced and healthy approach to diet, and weight management. And they also emphasize on the importance of lifestyle changes rather than just weight loss. So even, look, if you are making that choice, if you are going to live healthier, if you are going to change the way that you, or, or you know, change the things that you eat, you should have a balanced view on things, not just going to one extreme. And again, from a religious point of view, <clears throat> not necessarily or specifically in this regard, but generally speaking, God Almighty states that you should you should adopt the middle way. Middle way you shouldn't go so extreme that you just free, you just give up everything. Exactly. Everything. I'm just not going to eat. I'm just going to have water for the next seven days, which again is not healthy. Or if you go to the other extreme that we, we've just mentioned, eh, it's yeah, what a, I'm fine. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm fine the way it is. Yes. I like the way I look. Yeah. It's it's all good and fine. I mean, we all have some sort of room to improve. If I look at myself, I mean, <laughs> it's not, not like it's not like ten years ago, <laughs> and it, you know, it, it takes right. more time to get rid of this. But that shouldn't keep you away from from from. And maybe that's the reason they don't want to lose. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, you need to put effort into it. Yeah, that's to it. Literally, go to that gym every single day and yeah. have to have a good habits of eating. And it's very hard for the yeah. people who love food and they, they can't, you know, they want to have uh, three, four times a day, even though I think more two times a day should be sufficient, which I'm realizing now. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, look, I, th- I really um, appreciate what Dr. Mansour Dailahi mentioned, that age will teach you. Exactly. Life hmm. will teach you. And in that regard, look, 
when it comes to beauty, nobody is saying that it's not important. Mm. I'm thinking, for example, there's a narration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he's talking about when you when you're choosing your life partner, then there are certain criteria that we look for, right? So you marry someone based on their family status, you ba- you marry someone based on their looks, you marry someone based on their beauty. But the most important thing that you should consider is the righteousness, mm. the honesty, the integrity, the justice, and all of these things, the good moral qualities of a person. And the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has said, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that if you neglect these things, you will be ruined. You will be facing some sort of issues and problems down the line. And then, isn't that what it is? I mean, if you are married for like, t- let's say, 20, 25 years, beauty is, is, is a thing that fades. Indeed. And it's in the eye of the beholder. So, again, if you have any issues, if you think that this is having such an impact on your mental health and your mental well-being, by all means, please, please do get in contact with someone. Seek professional help. There's so much support out there um, for the younger generation or for any for anyone in any age category and age group or gender um, it's all about us making that first move and it's all about us reaching out sometimes the first step as we said is just talking about it if there's anything on your mind by all means share it with your friends share it with your family and see where you can get the most appropriate help we're going to go to the news and then we'll be back after that stay with us You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of God Almighty be upon you all. Thank you very much for joining us here on the Draft Time Show today with myself, Raza, and Hafiz Anik. We're going to move on to the second topic, but as we go on, um, the uh, question that we're asking in regards to the first topic is still on our Instagram stories. So go to Voice Islam UK on Instagram. What is the biggest cause of negative body image? Is it past trauma? Is it family pressure? Is it the media? Or is it the social circles? Now, as we said in the first half, at the beginning of the show, the next topic that we're going to be talking about in the next half hour, uh, in the next hour from five till six, is about international aid. And specifically, asking the question, if it is working or not. Now, just before we get into it, international aid, for those of you who don't know, is assistance provided by developed countries to developing nations to reduce poverty, to give them support, to increase economic or to support economic growth and address humanitarian issues. Now, it comes in various forms, such as you have grants, you have loans, you have technical assistance. And it can be given by governments, NGOs, and organizations like the United Nations and the World Bank. When it comes to the effectiveness of uh, this international aid, well, it is a subject of ongoing debate, with some believing that aid can help the GDP, the gross domestic product growth in poorer nations, if implemented strategically and correctly. If you redirect funds to targeted groups instead of government-to-government transfers. 
For example, as South Sudan uh, faces a growing food crisis, which is being seen as a failure of the international aid system, and reports indicate that the Syrian regime is a major obstacle preventing aid from reaching those in need, we invite you to join us as we explore the effectiveness and the impact of resource allocation and utilization, the challenge of tackling, uh, tackling corruption, which unfortunately is quite prevalent in certain countries, the importance of coordination and aid delivery, and of course the significant responsibility placed on individuals and communities by Islam to offer assistance, both domestically and internationally. Before we do so, we're going to go to our first guest right away. Joining us on the line is, so this is uh, Professor Dennis. So you are the Executive Director of the Institute of International Law of Peace and Armed Conflict and Professor of Conflict and Organization Research at the Ruhr University in Bochum in Germany. That is probably the right one, isn't it, Professor? <laughs> yes, although I changed my first position. I'm not executive director any longer, but okay. I'm still professor. I'm still doing field research, especially in Africa. Wonderful. Now, Professor, can you provide examples of how local organizations have demonstrated higher efficiency and quality in delivering aid? Because you previously mentioned in an article for The Guardian that this is being done. Well, I'm thinking, for example, about one organization in South Sudan, in Wau. That's the second city of South Sudan. It's called Mary Help Association. And they really know the local women well. They are really able to organize them in groups. And because they also have some good agricultural and health experts, uh, they've been able to let these women take the initiatives to improve the local agriculture, to work together uh, uh, better. They have also given them small micro-credits for small projects, um, um, helping uh, in education, um, but also helping making soap, you know, mm. really tiny projects, preparing food for the market. And because of they had this good local knowledge and they knew what the women could do and what they could not do and where they needed training, that was actually quite successful. And it actually improved the nutritional intake, not just of these women, but also of their families. Hmm. Now, when it comes to, as I mentioned, there's different organizations, different ways of how this international aid is delivered. So you have NGOs, uh, organizations like the United Nations and World Bank. I, I want to ask you on your, uh, you know, your perspective on the role of the private sector actors and yeah. how they deliver aid in you know conflict affected areas and how how can they work better together to achieve their goals because from from yeah. my experience speaking to different ngos and organizations and charities around the world you have let's say 10 10 organizations who have the same aim who have the same goal uh who meet the same issues and face the same challenges why is there no cooperation? Why is there no collaboration? Or is there maybe I just don't know about it? Well, no, Let, let's, let's go with your case of the 10 organizations. These 10 organizations come from different countries. Hmm. They've got different uh, capacities. They sometimes have uh, different strategies or even different people working, and they may not uh, understand the other organizations well. Um, then it becomes very important to be able to do local coordination. Some of those 10 organizations will succeed at that, but other organizations in a humanitarian crisis, they're only working there for half a year or a year, and then they leave again. Hmm. 
and that's not exactly this, the, 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 let's say, an ideal situation to get to know each other, to really get to know the local context and to get to know the other organizations that are working there. Hmm. If you're speaking about local NGOs, then the situation becomes different. But because they often already know each other, they know what's culturally appropriate, they know they've got great contextual knowledge, they may, for example, know local uh, traditional leaders or um, a local women's association, as I just gave an example. Um, then those organizations are able to work together. Now, that's not a given. Eh? Sometimes they may actually compete with each other. Mm. But at the moment that you can support their working together, there you can have um, there you can achieve uh, results that become more sustainable than when it's an international organization coming in and uh, leaving after a while yeah. so what are some of the let's say ethical or moral dilemmas faced by aid organizations in certain conflict affected areas and how can these be addressed to ensure that the delivery of aid is effective and impartial because that's that's ultimately the goal isn't it but there are many dilemmas. <laughs> I think the overall is, um, it's got to do with, uh, and that's not just a dilemma, but also a practical problem, lack of resources. Many <laughs> resources are now coming to the Ukraine, where they also are, are needed, yeah. but they are not op- always, you know, well adapted to the local Ukrainian situation. Yeah. And at the same time, many parts of Africa are now being left behind yeah. because there is less funding. And in 2022, that was not that bad, but Many organizations now expect that 2023 will become a lot harder. At the same time, due to the uh, Ukrainian war, there's, for example, high inflation, higher food prices, which also influences the food situation in many countries in the global south um, very uh, negatively. Now, the international aid community cannot do too much about it because they are not the ones who are providing the uh, resources. Nevertheless, within their limited purview, there's still a lot that they can do in terms of can they provide long-term funding, can they provide training, um, uh, joint evaluation, joint audits, but also, and this is something that for example works well in South Sudan, Hmm. different local organizations are sometimes 600 or 700 kilometers apart from each other. They may sometimes know about each other, but they've never worked with each other. If you bring them together, they are actually seeing, oh, this option works, you know, in our country, but we've never seen, uh, for example, how their seed storages functions or how they are working with women or how they are working across religious uh, divides. And if it works there, then it can also work with us. So that kind of South-South uh, cooperation could be, um, uh, could be funded more, could be strengthened more. Um, you could think um, also about having local auditors mm. or local evaluators and build up their skills so that the local work can be evaluated more often. And that could be another um, way to build capacities. And more general, if you want to work with local organizations, do more with local capacity building yeah. over longer periods of time. Now, the big question that everybody is asking, and we've had these debates and discussions in the public sphere quite a lot lately, about the impact of humanitarian aid. I mean, if you look at the numbers for the UK alone, so that's 0.7% of the GNI, 
which is the gross national income and in numbers yeah. that's what uh, r- roughly 11 11 12 billion around that um and that as we've just heard recently is going to be cut um that's yeah. something that Rishi Sunak has announced from 0.7 to 0.5 yeah. this year so yeah. how do we measure what is being done with i mean 11 billion pounds is quite a lot of money is it reaching yep. those in need in most conflict areas? Is it being utilized the way that it should be? Because the issues oh. that we face, if it's given to the government, you know, you have corrupt governments well, around the world. Yeah. What? What? How do you, we measure you, that? Well, you should be careful. If it's given to the government, it's most often development uh, money. Humanitarian sure. money is not always given to governments. But there it's often given to international organizations from the UN or the international NGOs like Oxfam. Hmm. Um it depends very much what they are doing uh, with the funding. It sometimes happens that a lot of money remains behind in the international organization. I was recently speaking to somebody from Cameroon, and they were talking about, well, I'm not going to mention the name of this organization, said but 90% goes to this own organization, only 10% goes to the people. Hmm. And you could see how, and this was a, a very accomplished humanitarian and development worker in Cameroon, um, you know, uh, an area where Boko Haram was very active, and his frustration yeah. was really strong about this uh, international organization. So that unfortunately help, uh, happens a lot. What we can do and should do is get to know the people in need much better, understand their yeah. needs much better. And sometimes local organizations do understand them better. Well, try then to not to get the money to the international organization, but get it as directly as possible to the local organization. Check, of course, how well their management uh, functions, eh? because also with local organization you can have management problems or corruption uh, problems. But if you are able to check their uh, capacities, their management skills, just also their outputs and the work that they're doing, ultimately also their outcomes and impact, then you will be able to, over time, uh, really improve uh, aid. Hmm. Do you think the government's like? Is there is there much follow up on this? I would say not enough. Hmm. Um, this is actually a project. You know, if you want to do it well, it will take ten years or twenty yeah, years, yeah. and for that you need consistent funding. You've just described how uh, the UK is cutting down its funding. We've seen similar developments in other uh, European uh, countries. Um, Yeah, that makes life harder. Of course. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm not negative. At the the local level, there's a lot that you can do, but we're not doing it consistently enough. All right. Wonderful. Professor Dijksel, thank you very much for for joining us today. I do apologize again for the mix-up in the beginning, (laughs) but uh, it was a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Okay. Hey, have a great one. Bye-bye. And, and ciao, you. Ciao. Take care. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Professor Dennis Dijksel, who is a professor at the Ruhr University in Bochum in Germany. Now, um, so we were talking about um, the beginning uh, of of uh, the beginning of the show of what exactly this uh, international entail, international aid entails, what some of the issues and, and, and problems that we face in the world. But I think before we get into some of the arguments pro and con, um, Anik, there's some different types of aids, isn't it? Uh, 
Indeed, of course. <clears throat> there is a humanitarian aid or emergency response. Uh, of course, there, there are some similar assistance providing during emergencies, uh, especially natural disasters, armed conflicts. And the reason or you know, the purpose to provide immediate support, organizations such as the Red Cross or Oxfam play a crucial role in delivering aid such as food, shelter, medical care, and other basic needs for those affected by the crisis. And if we discuss further, there's a bilateral aid, is aid provided by one country to another, usually delivered directly by the donor government to the recipient government or NGOs in the recipient countries. And it is often targeted towards specific projects or programs and may serve the donor country's uh, foreign policy objectives. There's another one. <clears throat> Multilateral aid is aid provided by a group of countries or international organizations like the United Nations or World Bank. Uh, is to address global problems and support countries in need. And the aim is to be more inclusive, not tied to the interest of a single donor country. And lastly, you also have charity-based aid, which is provided by non-profits, foundations, and individuals to improve lives and can take the form of donations or even volunteering. Now, while it can be a powerful tool for raising awareness and mobilizing public support for important causes, it also faces limitations such as coordination issues, lack of addressing root causes of poverty, and potential for mismanagement and corruption, something that we were just talking to Professor Dyksol about. Now, if you want to have your say, you can give us a call. 208 is the number for you to call because I know there's a quite a lengthy debate happening in the public about should we be given. I mean, we are talking about last year alone, or I think the numbers were 2021, £11.1 billion. That's £11 billion from the uh, GNI of the country um, that is going to other countries. And a lot of people have made this basically argument that we have homelessness on the rise. The cost of living crisis is skyrocketing. And that money is needed here at home. The NHS in dire need of more equipment, of more manpower, of more funding. But then we have these 11.1 billion and this year will probably be a little bit lower but still around that even if it's 10 billion there's a few billion going out out of the country um, to countries where we don't really have an influence on we don't know exactly 100% what happens with that money is it going to the people on the ground is it going to the people who are affected by whatever um, natural disaster or you know any conflict or anything that is happening in that country and the reason why we're sending that money to those countries is that even getting there or not now let's get into some of the arguments there's the critics and then of course those who are in favor so let's talk about um, some of the cons now some believe that official aid may promote corruption and this is probably one of the biggest factors, dependency. If you know that every year you will be mm. getting X amount of money, mm. why do the effort? Why, why, <laughs> why focus on your economy? So, so rather than 
alleviating long-term poverty, as I said, this is causing dependency. This is promoting corruption. So annual aid spending targets established by the United Nations in the 1970s have fueled this argument and led some to suggest that domestic resource shortages should take priority over aid to impoverished nations abroad. This, you know, the, the point that I've just mentioned. You know, as you were mentioning before, there are one charity-based uh, you know, aid. Of course, you're not getting that back, but there are some you know, aid you're helping other countries out. But as you mentioned earlier, the very important is to see whether they are spending that money in the right direction or not. Of course, uh, you know, God has given to these countries and that's why they're helping others. There are some people still in this country as well who needs some kind of help. They are homeless and, uh, you know, <clears throat> people are struggling uh, in different, uh, you know, problems are going on I- in their life. But when somebody's helping, I think that's another uh, the gratitude and I think they should, they should be helping others as well. But one thing they have to make sure that they are the people who are taking their spending in the right way. And as you mentioned, dependency, of course, that's the biggest thing we see. This, there are some countries, they are continuously taking the money every single year. They, I think there's no mm-hmm. year, yeah. they are not taking it. They, they want certain amount of aid every year. That means they are not, you know, rectifying themselves. And if they don't get it, they're here for a state visit. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, they're here. <laughs> I'm not going to mention the countries. I'm, I'm just saying. I think there's no need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. Um, and, and this is something, it's, it's, it's a very crucial point. And I think also from a religious point of view, from the Islamic perspective, <clears throat> I mean, what's the rule on begging? Begging is basically prohibited. It's discouraged, let's say, yes. in in the religion of Islam, and we've <clears throat> spoken about this, I think, recently as well. Um, but that's basically what it's what it's doing to these countries is mm. making them dependent on that aid and not reliant on 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 their own resources. But I think uh, the the bigger picture is sometime when they're giving aid, they're getting back something sure. on a longer term. Sure, and that's why they want to help them. Every year, there there comes the intention. Yes, yeah. and they're reaching to the you know they want to get something. Of course, it's slowly, slowly they're reaching. They're giving aid every year. Yeah. The aid is multiplying. Of course, they have to return with the you know uh, with interest. And uh, but I think you know of course they are need. That's what they ask for. But the countries who are you know in in a state that where they can help people, they should help other people, especially people who are vulnerable. And the, the the aid should reach to them, and I think there should be some other uh, you know ways to to think that how they can you know uh, help those countries to mm. build up their country, okay, and assist themselves rather than asking other countries every year. Yeah. Then you have also large cash transfers, which mm. um, you mentioned um, is is one another uh, part of 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 this. Uh, the con side, as you can, if you can say so, mm. um, which can deter investment and promotion of domestic businesses and industries. Now we know that um, economic growth and long-term prosperity they occur through free enterprise and free trade, and pursuing free trade has a demonstrably positive effect on global prosperity. The Copenhagen Consensus Center estimates that lowering trade barriers around the world could reduce the number of people living in poverty by 145 million in just over a decade. 
So you have emergency funding for humanitarian aid and crisis situation, which is important, no doubt about that, but insufficient for long-term poverty alleviation. As you know, Professor Dykson also mentioned, Dykson mentioned, if you were to pursue what happens with that money, if you were to um, make sure that it gets to the right destination, that it actually helps the people on the ground, to to oversee all of this and to reform that 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 whole system it would take around 10 years and and who wants to go through that <laughs> if you have if you have issues here at home as well so only trade liberalization can effectively alleviate poverty in the long run, in the long term that is something that some of the people are saying um who are you know critical about about international aid but there's also another side to this. Of course, there are some people are in favor. The people think that that's the right thing to do. And despite, you know, criticism, as I mentioned, some believe that development aid can be effective and uh, implemented and contributing to GDP, gross de- domestic product growth in uh, improvised na- nations. Advocates suggest redirecting aid funds towards targeted groups instead of using potentially corrupt government to government financial transfer. Of course, that's what happens. The countries, they are in need. And we also, you know, see in news, they are corrupt as well. Yeah. And most of the time, I've personally, you must have seen as well, you know, the, <clears throat> I don't want to name a country, but, uh, don't. you know, <laughs> and uh, the, the disaster came there and uh, people didn't get anything. Even though there was a very big aid scheme from all over the world, but they, the people who are on the grounds or, you know, uh, people who are in need, they didn't get anything from that. And that Mm. shows that, you know, this way of sending money, that's not right. I think there should be other ways so the the aid, uh, you know, can reach uh, Mm. to, to, to the needy. On, on the larger scale, development aid has been criticized for its tendency to, uh, you know, uh, the resources generate waste and facilitate uh, corruption. And UN targets for foreign aid spending can be seen as an expensive virtue uh, signaling project that achieves uh, mm-hmm. little. So I think that's true. Even though they are giving their money for something for, for a bigger uh, you know, for for a very important thing, but at the end, you know, they they achieve very little, yeah. achieve very little out of that big aid, and supporting the development of people around the world. Though aid is still important, but we need to to be more crucial on how aid is allocated, and this is the debate. I think we should not be stopping. You know, we should mm. not stopping funding people. Of course, they're in need, but we have to have some kind of uh, clarity that how the aid has been allocated. If we discuss the bottom of development is most effective placing power and agency in the hands of local communities, top-down development schemes often fail to deliver meaningful results in local communities due to cultural and uh, technological differences. And engaging with the communities from the beginning to implementation leads to substantial project, less unexpected consequences and community number gain agency. Bottom-up development projects foster sustainable growth and increase general prosperity, providing jobs and improving uh, technologies. Specific projects such as providing clean water or, you know, sanitation facilities, creating small 
enterprises in our rural communities and providing better access to school are important steps towards uh, creating a healthier, more productive and prosperous society. And wherever the, the, the money has been spent in that way, especially we, <clears throat> our own, you know, the charities are working of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, especially in, in Africa where they are helping people, they yeah. are having you know clean water, and they are building new schools, the hospitals, the eye operations are going through. The doctors are there to see the you know the the children. The pediatric pediatrics are there, so these kind of fundings should be there, and you know nobody is against those. And people are in the world. They think that you know God has given to us a lot, then we should share to other people as well. But when the AIDS are not helping others and there's no outcome of it, then yeah. people start talking about no, it. No, I was uh, literally thinking about, for example, Humanity First, mm, yes. uh, who have this uh, Water for Life project. Mm. We've spoken about this uh, so many times with them and the impact that it has. I've seen it for myself mm-hmm. when, I, when I'm, I'm not sure if you've had this opportunity as well, but when we went to, to Ghana, to Africa... Mm. Um, we went to this one place and His Holiness Hazim the current caliph of the Amdiya Muslim community, used to live there as well when when he went to Africa in the 70s. And we were shown the place where they would collect the water from. Mm. We were shown the way the water looked like. So you are looking at a dark, light brownish color which I don't think anybody in his wildest dreams could even imagine drinking because mm. there's no way that that could be any anywhere close to healthy. And then, just, I mean, in the middle of, of, of that village, they put up that water pump. It was mm. a hand pump, right? But... That is the hub, the hub of, of, of the whole town, of the whole village. Mm-hmm. So the kids, they can go there, they can fill up their buckets and then and, and take it home and you can wash your clothes or whatever it is that you need. And it's right there and then. So you have the time to do other things. Mm. The health benefits are just tremendous. Mm-hmm. And also the happiness and the joy that you see on the people's faces that is something which is priceless mm. I think we take these things for granted isn't oh living. yeah we do we and do. Uh, only water I think we, we, we are thinking about some other things we're yeah. going to get to a new car new house this and that everything every day you have a new desires yeah. but on the other hand we just need water the clean that, water <laughs> that's what it is and I think it's not just water so water for life is just yeah. one of the projects that, that they have but if you look at you know the sustainability of the different villages and projects that they have, if you have the globe, the the model villages that they establish, mm. so you have running water, uh, electricity, uh, sanitation, and all of these things, it is crucial, and that is going to the 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 people on the ground. That's what what is making that impact. That is what may, what is making that change. You know, one thing I would like to mention here, my, one of our friends, you know him as well, Sahil, he went to Africa a few days back and he was visiting the school and one of the school, he basically, you know, shared a picture that, and a sad emoji that there hasn't got electricity. Mm. So I asked him, I think, is it the same thing in every school? He said, no, all our school has electricity. Mm. We try to, you know, bring it uh, to, to to the schools. And this is the only school which hasn't got electricity. <laughs> so we will provide them electricity as well. 
You know, they are going through this problem. So, as you mentioned, the Humanity First, they're working day and night, the Muslim Association working day and night to facilitate people all around the world. Our next guest for today is an economist. He's a senior fellow in the Sustainable Development Finance and Europe programs at the CGD, which is a center for global development. Mr. Ranil Desanayake is with us on the line. Good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hi. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, when when it comes to the effectiveness of foreign aid in promoting economic growth and reducing poverty in those um, developing countries, a lot of people are skeptical. I mean, we've just collected a few pros and cons that we could come across, but I'm sure there's there's a whole variety of more um, uh, you know, different ways and angles how you look at it. What, what's your perspective on this? So, I mean, talking about the effectiveness of foreign aid is a bit like talking about the effectiveness of medicine. It depends on identifying the right medicine for the right problem. And if you've got the right medicine for the right problem and you take the medicine faithfully and you follow the right prescription, it can work. So asking just does it work doesn't really make a great deal of sense. It's really... Does it work for the thing that you, does this kind of aid for this problem work? Hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's never going to be the biggest and only deciding factor in whether a country starts to grow more, grow faster, whether poverty gets eradicated. But used correctly, yes, it can help. And there's an enormous body of academic research which looks at specific programs and sort of says, what happens when you some people get this program and others don't, when they're otherwise similar? And, you know, some programs work and some don't. And we're constantly learning from that to try and fine-tune and improve the way that aid is um, delivered. How um, have the recent global events such as the COVID-19 pandemic impacted sustainable development uh, finance and foreign aid? Well, it's done two things, really. One is that it's increased the needs for many poorer countries and that's come sort of directly from the direct effects it's had on their health but also from the indirect effects it's had disrupting education disrupting trade and sort of generally causing a sort of um uh, global economic slowdown so it's increased the needs that they uh, that those countries have poverty is actually picked up for the first time in years uh, there's been a slight increase in global poverty but at the same time, for some countries, the UK included, uh, the UK is sort of really prime among them, it's also caused them to tighten their own belts and reduce the amount of aid that they're giving. So it's done two things, really. It's increased how much countries need, and it's somewhat reduced the amount available for them. How can uh, international organisations or private sector actors and governments work together to advance sustainable development finance and make foreign aid more effective? So I think specifically, especially for the um, international donors and governments, the main thing is will. If everybody Mm. wants it to work and there is a real commitment to solving problems as they arise and really solving the difficulties that sort of lead to sort of poverty and low growth, then most things can be resolved and, it, and that's the most important determining uh, factor for success. There's a really wonderful book by a 
Centre for Global Development non-resident fellow named Stefan Dekhan called Gambling on Development, which argues really that the most important thing is if the recipient country really wants to use the aid effectively and to pursue a path of sustainable development, it can, that's the most important thing. And for the private sector, the same thing is true, really, in the sense that, you know, the private sector will always look for the way that it will maximize profits and do the best it can for itself. Now, in a country where everybody is sort of in a cozy relationship where they, the private sector's best part to making large profits is to take advantage of sort of preferential treatment or restrictive laws that prevent competition, then it's not going to really do much good for economic growth and development. But in a country where the laws and regulations are set to sort of encourage competition, exporting and so on, then all three, all three partners um, together can sort of um, work towards the common goal. And I think the most important thing is having the common goal, and that's definitely not always the case. And when it's not the case, it's actually quite hard to make progress. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing we were discussing in the show today uh, from the very beginning, uh, of course, there are countries, they are, you know, have much enough to give other countries. But the aid they are giving, are they, you know, having some kind of checks on it, whether they are spending on the right things or are people getting it? Because most of the time we see the, you know, the countries, they are some kind of, you know, they know they're going to get the aid every year and the certain aid. But on the other hand, you know, the aid is not reaching to the people they should reach to. What what, what would you like to say on this? So... There have, of course, been examples where aid has been misappropriated, just like any government spending can be, any any spending can be misappropriated. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, there's not large flows of aid into sort of corruption or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Most of it does Mm -hmm. wind up doing the things that it was supposed to do. It could be do it. It could be done better for sure. I mean, I would like to see much higher proportion of aid being spent by local organizations and community organizations based in developing countries and much less spent by sort of consultants from the UK and so on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look at the numbers, over the last 50 years, there's been such an extraordinary fall in global poverty. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't necessarily know that from looking at the num- uh, looking at the headlines, but mm-hmm. this is, you know, if you were born... I was born in 1981, right? And if you were born in 1981, mm-hmm. the odds of being born in, as born into extreme poverty somewhere in the world would have been about 40% or something. Like, well, maybe not quite that high. It would have been extremely high mm-hmm. compared to how it is now. Now, the rate of extreme poverty is somewhere below 10% of the globe. That's such extraordinary progress. And sure, aid isn't perfect, and it hasn't been used perfectly, but it's been a part of that progress. And the idea that it's just not working, it's not getting to the right people, it's not consistent to what we've seen in dramatic declines in child mortality, enormous improvements in maternal um, sort of health outcomes, rapid declines in global poverty. And these mm. declines have been seen in almost every country, not quite every country, but almost everywhere, even places that aren't otherwise doing amazingly well. Indeed, you relate to this thing, as you said, uh, but... Sometimes people ask the same question that living in the, in the UK, 
people are struggling, especially nowadays. We see, you know, they some kind of need more help than NHS, and you know, the people are homeless, and uh, you know, people are not even able to pay the bills. So, what kind of you know? They, sometimes they ask this question: We are sending the aid out of country, whether we need help, you know, help within our own country. So, what's your take on it? So. The amount of money we spend on uh, we given foreign aid is mm. a relatively small portion of the government's mm. budget. Mm. And there is no necessary trade-off mm. between supporting the NHS and supporting other countries. Mm. In fact, over the long run, you'd say that they're potentially, you know, they, they, they both matter enormously. Mm. Now, there's no reason why we can't do both. And a lot of that is about spending each part more effectively. Mm. And... That, I think, is there is so much, as you said, you know, there's so much scrutiny on the aid budget mm. that, that the media is constantly asking questions. There are, there's a specific parliamentary committee that scrutinizes the aid budget. There is an independent commission that looks at the impact of the aid budget. And then there's all of the usual stuff that, um, all of the usual processes that um, the parliament has to go through to check on the efficiency and effectiveness of the aid budget. It's under so much scrutiny that I think we forget that it's got so much pressure on it to deliver and to do it well that mm. it is generally a really well run part of uh, really well run part of government spending, and I think the onus really on the government is to improve other parts of government spending equally and really to get the policies right. It's not about needing to take money out of poor countries mm. in order to shore up the NHS. It's about getting the policies right in each sphere. True. And we can do that. There's no reason why we, don't, we, we shouldn't. Again, is the way of spending, isn't it? They should be spending in the right direction. So just going on to the last question, can you elaborate on the impact of aid on uh, economic growth? And what does the recent research say about uh, this relationship? There is generally, it's a really hard question to mm-hmm. um, research sort of to a very high academic standard. But two of the best papers, I think, and two of the best pieces of research in the last uh, decade or so that have looked at this paper, one is by a colleague of mine called Michael Hammond and his co-authors, um, called, and another one is by um, an author called Sebastian Galliano and his co-authors. Both of them look in very different ways at the effect of foreign aid on growth. They, and they both find something quite similar, a small but positive effect. Now, that should be exactly what we expect, because the amount of foreign aid most countries get, is, you know, can be fairly large in some places, but generally it's not that large. And it's only one of a number of things that you need to get right in order to um, sort of push your economy into the right direction. There's a whole bunch of other things that you need to do well. So... Increasing the amount of aid will probably only have a generally small effect on economic growth, but that's not to say it doesn't matter, because a small increase in economic growth over time makes a very, very big difference to welfare. Indeed, you know, as I said, it's going to be the last one, but I think I had another question in my mind, if uh, you could answer that as well. You know, when uh, the countries are giving aid to the uh, the countries are in need, there are, of course, some charities are based, you know, the charity-based aid, but they are, there are some aid which, uh, you know, is kind of loan to other countries. You know, in return, they have to pay interest and 
that's making make, making them more poor, isn't it? What, what do you say about it? So, look, borrowing isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you borrow to invest in something that has a stream of returns, hmm. then it can make you better off, right? right? Now, most of the time when you have foreign aid that is a loan with a repayment, they have what's called a grace period, a sort of fairly long time before you have to start repaying. Mm-hmm. You also have an interest rate, which is below what you would get on the open market. Mm-hmm. So it's still... Now, you can, you can argue about how much that should count as aid. Maybe you say that any lending shouldn't be aid or that it mm-hmm. should be counted as aid at a much lower level. But it's not impoverishing countries to borrow. Mm-hmm. What's in, if a country is borrowing to... I don't know, uh, build a football stadium that it doesn't need or a new cricket stadium that it doesn't need, that, that, might, be, that, that might be a bad investment to make. Mm-hmm. But it's not the act of borrowing that's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is the bad choice of investment. And that's kind of what I mean when I say mm-hmm. that everybody has to really want to make it work. Mm-hmm. You've got to choose the right things to do. You've got to finance it in the right way and so on. And then, and you know, that's when you get sort of better outcomes. Mm-hmm. But if you're borrowing from, whether it's from donors or from the private market mm-hmm. to do vanity projects, then it's not surprising when it goes wrong, is it? That's right. Absolutely right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ranil, for joining us today. And uh, it was lovely speaking with you. Thank you very much once again and have a great evening. My pleasure. Thank you very thank much. You. Bye. This was Mr. Ranil. Uh, he was an economist, senior fellow in the Sustainable Development Finance and Euro Program at uh, CGD, Center for Global Development. And uh, he has given us uh, insight the <clears throat> regarding the aids which are going and how it's impacting the growth and how you know the countries which are get, getting the aid, how they can spend that aid on the right direction to have a you know, right outcome. I always think, wonder... How do they choose which country needs? Because sometimes you think China doesn't need international aid. India doesn't need international mm-hmm. aid. They've got, they've got space programs. <laughs> they're, they're, they've got billions and, and billions of, of dollars. Why, do they, if, why are they in such need of, uh, of aid, whereas you get some really, really, really bad countries... Mm-hmm who really need help in Africa, even in South America. And in proportion, from a percentage-wise, they get a very small amount. And my my fear is mm. it's a politic, it's a politicized yes. system. I think they, they want something in return, isn't it? That's right. Yes. I, I think your, your final question was so relevant that aid is all well and good. On one hand, you're giving mm. aid. But the same country, when they give loans... The the loan interest alone hmm. is far greater than the aid they gave them. Hmm. <laughs> so they might be giving with one hand, but they're taking with the other. The other and cool. and, and there's a shame that they politicize such a system. You know, one thing uh, Ranil mentioned, if they are taking the aid and spending the right things on the right projects, they hmm. will get more money out of it. Yeah. That's what we do in, in this country as well. Of People, course. you know, they take loan, they spend on something, they create their businesses, and they return that as well. But I think <clears throat> when we discuss, particularly about the countries which have corruption, hmm. 
They're exactly. taking the money, exactly. keeping themselves, not putting the projects. Mm-hmm. At the end, the country has to return double, maybe triple. <laughs> or, or sometimes there are projects that get created on paper. Yeah, true. But in practice, the projects never exist. Yeah. And you get to find out decades later that, uh, you know, this money that was given to them hmm. was never actually used at, or the the true recipients um, of this aid were, were never rewarded with this with this aid. You're right. You know, living in this country, when I've seen or I've discussed people just, let's suppose, if buying a house, mm-hmm. you know, buy to let, if you say, they... The, 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 a banker or somebody, you know, go to the property and see whether it's, uh, you know, uh, really beneficial for us or, you know, it's the right, right decision to give money to him or not. Yeah. So why on this, you know, when they're giving a very large amount to other countries, why not then going there every year to see what's going on? Yes. Are they spending in the right direction or not? That's such a fantastic point you make that, you know, there needs to be constant, there needs to be a monitoring system yes, in place. Yes, that's right, yes. That, um, but, but again... We've kind of answered our own question because we know the reason they don't monitor is because there is there is a political element added yes. to in in uh, in in when giving this aid. It's like well, it's kind of like um, the unsaid. You scratch my back and I'll scratch mm. yours, and and it's the governments who and who kind of make deals. True, you know, see, especially I don't want to name a country, and uh, we see, you know, they are on the uh, on the edge of you know just. Uh, bankruptcy bankruptcy and where they are aiding them they know they have a money they want it they're giving to them but they want something big in return mm. not only interest mm. so <clears throat> when you you know you, you go into it you think about it there's a bigger game going on uh, which you know of course people are or the, the big countries are playing with other countries I think the true aid should be for the people who are in need especially we can't, you don't see that much aid going on to Africa, as you were saying. Yeah. You know, they should be helping those. They are people are, you know, not they're starving every day. They're not eating. I, I always wonder, hmm. you know, when you give aid, hmm. they should set up hmm. local NGOs. Yeah. Which, if somebody has to be employed, employ the locals. True. To distribute it. In, they're, instead they're pay, of, they're paying for them, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> You know, it's instead of even with international and, mm. and large corporate NGOs, mm. and m- people might think, what's a corporate NGO? Because a corporate NGO is even when, you know, NGOs who have directors who earn three figure sums, mm. they run it like a corporate business that mm. is, is run. True. Whereas, you know, the, the, one of the beauties of uh, if, if one was to look at within the Amdi Muslim community, um, the the charity that was set up uh, under the leadership of the fourth caliph of the Amri Muslim community, Hazrat Mizza mm. Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on his soul, when Humanity First was set up, which is majority run on volunteers. True. The 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 aim and the intention is to give aid mm. because and to serve humanity, which is one of the core fundamentals True. of of God Almighty. So the intention needs to be to serve to, to serve fellow man, man. Yes, true. Not to not to kind of serve man on the condition that I will be paid for it, because <laughs> because that takes away the reward, doesn't it? Indeed, I think to answer the first question you were saying about the NGOs, the local NGOs. Yeah. You know, one thing maybe the you know the countries they cannot aid these small NGOs because the, there's a chance that they are you know uh, spending in the right way as well. Yes. But I think the both paths are somehow dangerous where they are spending money. But as you said at the end, you know, the NGOs should be working voluntarily because they are working for a certain purpose yes. to serve humanity. 
So you are taking money. You can take a small chunk, but as you mentioned, people are taking a lot of money and as a like this is my salary. I'm That's working right. day and night, yeah. and uh, you know when you compare it, the whole amount of one NGO, it's it's though the people are getting just maybe ten percent of yeah. of the charity yeah. they're yes. receiving. That's right. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, as humanity first, we're working day and night, and I see my friends. They are engineers. They are just working there for a very minimal amount, and they're not asking for you know what they can get. In in in, in, return. Uh, in return, or you know, if the the job, if they do job outside of uh, the humanity first, but mm-hmm. they are serving humanity, they have devoted their life, and that's the true. That's how you can achieve the true purpose of aid and helping others. Most definitely, and you know, to, to, as we're talking about humanity first, I mean, I mean, the last time I I um, spoke to somebody from humanity first, I think they mentioned something like ninety two pence mm-hmm. um, from every pound goes to. A needy person. So it's, it's, uh, it's uh, other way around, isn't it? <laughs> Whereas in 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 corporate and and these large organisations, um, you know, it's a it's a as you say, it's more or less the other way around. I mean, there are other don't get me wrong. Well, yes. There are other organisations who give hmm. similar kind of 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 uh, of a return to yeah. the to the end user. Yeah. Um, but um, majority are the other way around. Other way around. Where majority of the money is administrative. Yeah. Um, and the actual um, recipient of, of of the aid is is minimal. I think the overall Islam teaches that you should be taking care of others, and uh, for that I think you know there's system of zakat and in in especially in in Ahmadiyya Muslim Association we have system of uh, wasiyat the will hmm. where you ride where you give twenty percent of share from your own. You know uh, your income, yeah. your income, and you, you would like to give yourself. Nobody's, you know, uh, asking you to give that money into it. It's a personal choice. Personal choice, yeah. and that money for the longer term, the Khalifatul Masih the second, the second Khalifa of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, mm-hmm. has mentioned that a day will come where this, you know, system will help everyone, mm-hmm. businesses. This will be mother of young people, young children, and this will be husband of you know widows. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the system will be helping everyone, and they won't ask, you know, something in return or maybe interest. They will give them until and unless they, you know, stand up on their feet. And as businesses, you know, as is mentioned in the detail, that if a business need help, we will give it to them. Mm. And if we think they are, you know, standing on their feet, they can return the money. We'll take it back. If not, there's nothing, you know, or something of interest. Or now they have to give double, and they are just, uh, you know. Uh, rather than flourishing in the in the life, they spend their time looking to pay back. Exactly, and and you know, and and what people also forget is, um, in the first part of the show, we were talking about mental health. Hmm. This yes, aspect, <laughs> this aspect of giving back, hmm. is what affects in in if we want if if we look at the Western world, hmm. people spend a minimum of twenty year twenty five years of their life, owing hmm. to the bank, as you mentioned, a mortgage. <laughs> True. So you know, and we already know more than fifty percent of your income goes to the bank. True. In paying off a mortgage, because if you don't make payment, the fear is I'm going to lose my house. If I lose my house, where will my kids stay? Where will my family stay? Where will I stay? So, it's these kind of things that are so directly related to mental health as well. True. You know, slowly, slowly, we are going towards that where people are thinking that we need a new system. How to run well, money? Because of course, take long, but even it's not us on the smaller ground need to pay to bank. I think the countries needs to pay to the bank as well. Yeah, and they are they are struggling as well to pay back to the banks. Well, it is because sometimes the you know the the developed countries tie up 
small countries in such huge interest payments mm. that even after they've actually paid off the loan, mm. the interest is paid for the next 10 years after they've paid off the loan. <laughs> so so they end up paying not three, four, five times over. Exactly. And, and you know, if, if, if you really want to give aid, then the aid needs to be given with the right intention, mm. not, the, the, not the financial incentive. It, it needs to be that you truly want to assist a country in, in helping it flourish. Indeed, you know, in Islam, particularly if you discuss, because to give, to give it to somebody, you have to have something, isn't it? Of course. And everybody has to contribute. Yeah. And Islam, there's a system of zakat where people, the people have certain, uh, you know, uh, number of amount or certain if you have... Unused wealth. Unused wealth or, yeah. you know, jewelry or anything. There has to be yeah. a certain amount to start paying the zakat where you give 2.5%. And that's, you know, just for needy people. Hmm. And, you know, many people, in many Muslims in, 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 in the world, they pay zakat every year. And that amount goes to people who are in need. And the system was started as, you know, 1500, 1500 years back, where God Almighty, you know, said, instructed that all of us should be paying zakat. Hmm. And that's going to help people. And if we, you know, I would like to say to all Muslims who are listening to our show today that they should be paying zakat according to the rate. And what would happen, that zakat would be helping people in need. Mm. And especially, you know, the countries, the third world countries, there are, of course, there are some Christian countries, but there are, most, there are many Muslim countries as well where people need help. So if you're paying zakat, of course, the grant will, you know, go to the needy people and it will help. And the, the, the purpose God has, you know, instructed instructed this to have a zakat within Islam. It will, you know, uh, fulfill the purpose. Yes, without a doubt. Uh, and and I think, I think it's a mindset and interpretation as mm, well. True. Zakat is an investment. <laughs> You're making an investment, and the return is the hereafter. Indeed. And 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 you know, it's not like don't look for the return in this world. It's God's love, whatever you need, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, exactly. It's it's how much reward you will gain. It gets um, sometimes hard to pay the money if you have a of lot of money. But if you take it out, that was you feel as yes, you have given something in the way of God. And in the in the back, as you said, what you get, you get the love of God Almighty. Without a doubt. You're listening to Drive Time Show with myself, Kayum, and Brother Anik. Uh, we are going to be concluding the show. You've been listening to how um, mental health and physical health get affected by body image. Um, that was what was discussed from four to five. And for the past hour or so, the discussion has been around international aid. Um, I'd like to thank Aisha Malik and uh, Faiza Mirza for the production of today's show. Thank you to all of our guests for taking time out and coming on to the Drive Time Show. Thank you to Brother Anik. Thank you to Brother Akib, mm. in, uh, um, our technical engineer, without whom we wouldn't be on air. Thank you to you for listening. Uh, please remember us in your prayers. Please forgive any shortcomings on our part until we meet again may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all